Welcome back to The Musicologist and the Nerd. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Concord, and this is Nick. I have too many banjos. Wainwright. Um, sad, but true. <laughs> yes, it is definitely. It's not sad. I think it's actually happy, at least if, if you don't have to live with you. I don't know. Does, does Elizabeth think it's a happy thing? You know, this morning when I was playing my trumpet in the bedroom and the banjos were reverberating, um, she wasn't a huge fan. She said, get outside, you heathen. <laughs> uh, you you use much nicer words than I do, or than she did. <laughs> I'm sure that, that Fox the cat uh, and Max the dog were like, what is happening? You know, I think they're not even phased by it at this point. I just whip out instruments in random all the time. So That is very funny. Well, we are coming to all of you from a very beautiful spring May day in... Uh, san juan island it's almost my birthday oh it is i almost forgot no that's a lie i forgot <laughs> that's okay i forgot about yours until until elizabeth was like oh it's my husband's birthday i'm like oh yeah right terrible friend <laughs> um nick's is really easy to remember everybody because his is on earth day so super easy to remember if you are a good friend <laughs> Um, I was kind of hoping, I had this secret hope that we would get tickets to Hamilton for my birthday. This was a hope that I started harboring in July, or July, January. And uh, it, since then, it's it's become like, I hope I get to go to the grocery store more than once a week. That's my big birthday wish. <laughs> Maybe see a couple people I know in person. <laughs> oh, what lockdown has done to us. I know. Well, one of the positive things that lockdown has done is made it so that I listen to a lot more music than I was before because I'm not as busy. Um, and I'm not as busy socializing anyway when it's harder to actually pay attention. So I don't know, Nick, did you get to take advantage of cats being <laughs> for free this weekend? <laughs> so <clears throat> first off, there is nothing in this world that would ever make me want to watch cats. Um <laughs> Just, just to start with that. Um, just, and, just put that little tidbit out there. And then second off, the whole COVID lockdown quarantine thing actually makes me busier. Uh, being in emergency services, people just are going crazy. People are going stir crazy at this point. So they decide that 911 is needed for just about everything at this point. Well, and didn't part of your phone system go down this last week too? Weren't you telling me that the main number went down for a little while? So... Yes. Yeah, so, so people don't know, uh, but uh, I work at the sheriff's office. We're a small municipality. We cover technically 172 islands, but there's only really like four with people on them, maybe 20 with like three or four Any people. Any people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so we take all emergency and non-emergency calls for the sheriff's office and 911. So we have a non-emergency business line number. That went down for a day and a half, Ugh. which is its own real fun thing because then people without emergencies will start calling 911. And there are different ringtones. They 911, as soon as we hear that, it kind of gets us on edge, ready to potentially save a life if someone's dying. That's our worst case scenario. Somebody's not breathing, somebody's unconscious, something like that. So we have to take care of that. So when we answer 911, what's the address of your emergency? And you're like, so, you know, it's not really an emergency, <laughs> but my neighbor's goats got out again. <laughs> it, it really kind of, really kind of sets things back a little. 
That is actually, so uh, when I used to work in the public works office, we just had the sheriff's radio going all the time. And that was one of my favorite calls to listen to was the different deputies checking in saying, yeah, all the goats have been rounded up. Because yep. <laughs> quite quite frequently um, you hear calls about cows getting out or somebody's horse is loose or there are sheep in the road or something. And um, that was very funny then. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't funny to the deputies, but to listen to was a little bit of sitcom drama. <laughs> at this point, it doesn't even phase us. It happens so often. At least once or twice a week, we get a call about someone's deer, or not deer, someone's uh, <laughs> someone's goats, someone's uh, cows, someone's rabbits, who knows? Everything gets out at this point. And then everyone's kind of used to it. We if, To the point where... Depending on where the cow gets out and what color it is, we pretty much just know who to call. So we won't even send a deputy out if we don't have to. We'll just call. Yeah, up. just call the hey, owner dude, directly. I think your cow's out. Like, yep. Okay, I'll get it. Done. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you do get deer calls as well because we have quite a few deer that get hit by cars here. Um, so they don't really have any other natural predators. So they just they breed out of control. And um, my dumb. office used to deal with them and. You got to love those ones where you get a call and the person says, yeah, the ravens have already gotten to their eyes. Better bring a shovel. <laughs> yeah. And, and the deer are just dumb. And half the time it's not cars hitting deer. It's deer hitting cars. Yes. <laughs> um, I have many friends that have passenger side doors with big old dents in them. Yep. Because like, the deer just ran straight into him. My husband's dad, that happened to him when he was on his motorcycle. Yeah. And that's the deer just scary... sideswiped him. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, well, I'm sorry you didn't get to watch Cats, but uh, I'm not really that sorry because I don't think you were missing very much. Yeah, sometimes if I want to watch Cats, I just stare at Fox here at my house and watch him <laughs> be a cat. He's actually probably more interesting. I will say I did really enjoy some of the music and the dancing was spectacular. But um, I and I didn't get to see it all the way through. I, I watched about two thirds of it because uh, I had to watch it in sections because I was so bored. <laughs> um, it just yeah, didn't have a lot of plot and um, it felt really disjointed and almost like you had to be on drugs to enjoy it. And maybe maybe I just don't know what it's really like to be on crazy hard drugs. But um, so it's my imagination. But it just seemed like. Maybe if you were really super, super, super high, you would think it was the coolest thing ever. Not my favorite. Okay. I'm going to take your word for it. And I know there's a couple of good songs there because everyone knows that what, memory song. Like, it's, you know. Well, yeah, everybody does know. I mean, we were just standing outside my house yesterday and, and um, Elizabeth was regaling us with some bits of and pieces from Cats that she knows. And she knew a lot more than I did. And yeah, <laughs> freaking musicologist. <laughs> a little sad, but not, uh, you know, completely unwarranted. Yeah. Well, this week we are deviating from our normal path a little bit. And we are looking at a book. Uh, it's called Enchanted Evenings, the Broadway musical from Showboat to Sondheim and Lloyd Webber. And it is by my undergraduate supervisor, Dr. Jeffrey Block. So we each picked a chapter and read it. And um, I I had never heard the show that I picked for my chapter. So I went back and, and listened and watched a couple of versions just to familiarize myself with the show. But Nick picked one that was on 
one of his favorite shows. Yes. Wild guesses what it is? Wild guesses? Anyone? Anyone? Rumors from crowd? No? No? Okay. Do I hear, do I hear Phantom of the Opera from oh, the back of the room? There, oh, See, you got it. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you, fictional audience member. <laughs> yes. I love the audience participation. Now, this uh, this is a show that I have seen, but it's been a long time. And I've seen it both um, on stage and um, the movie. And then reading the synopsis unfortunately because of my crazy schedule i did not have the opportunity to re-watch it so i'm going off memory and off of um, dr block's uh synopsis here but the good thing is his synopsis has more detail than the play ever could <laughs> yeah i was actually really glad to read that chapter i thought that was it was a it was a good chapter but we're going to start with Showboat and then go to Phantom of the Opera. He begins his book with Showboat and ends it with Phantom. And so we thought we'd kind of echo that trajectory. Um, yeah. So, Nick, have you ever seen Showboat? I have not. And I really wanted to watch it before, but just didn't get the chance. It's, um, you know, it's a full length musical. So it's definitely it takes some time to watch. And it is one that has a lot of dancing elements and um, some physical comedy and some beautiful sets, depending on who does it. So it's, it's well worth watching rather than just listening to, I would say, but it is, it's an interesting musical in a, in a lot of ways. It came out in 1927 with music by Jerome Kern and lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein, the second, um, people may know him from his work with Rogers, so Rogers and Hammerstein. Um, initially, he was working with Jerome Kern, but Kern died in 1946, so they did not continue working together after that. What? They didn't continue working after he died? That doesn't make know, any it's sense. It's really sad. So the last song that Kern wrote was a new song for Showboat in one of its iteration so he died i believe in 1946 1945 so the last song he wrote was a new song for showboat so this musical was kind of their first great work um oscar hammerstein and and jerome kern and it remained popular for a very long time um so yeah it's interesting the plot revolves around a showboat, as you might guess, that is traveling up and down the Mississippi River. It's called the Cotton Blossom, this boat is. It's captained by Captain Andy Hawks, and his family lives on board as well as the crew and the cast. Um, and so it follows essentially three sets of lovers in the show. So the first set are the, um, the leading man and woman when the when the story begins so that is julie and steve i think is the other guy's name it's a little uh inauspicious um but so yeah it is steve julie and steve so julie's the leading lady steve's the leading man and then the second pair um are comedians on the boat and the third pair are Captain Andy's daughter, Magnolia, and a traveling gambler named Ravenal. Gaylord Ravenal. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they have some some great name. I love Magnolia as a name. That's just awesome. Everybody calls her Noli. 
Um, that's a, I, I would never think of that as a shortening of Magnolia, but it seems to like be a very nice name. Pleasant. Yeah. Yeah. Noli, Nola kind of fits with, you know, what people call New Orleans Nola. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it starts off in the late 1800s. And essentially, as the riverboat is traveling through um, this town called Nanchez, Mississippi, they introduce all the characters. There's lots of singing and dancing. They also introduce one of the themes of this musical, which there's it's kind of about racial tension in the South. And in Mississippi at the time, it was illegal for a white man or I think a white woman to be married to a, a black man or a black woman. So and that's called miscegenation. So that's one of the themes. And it turns out that the leading lady, Julie, is half black and half white. And so she has to leave the boat with her husband um, because otherwise she's going to be arrested for this crime. So once they leave, Magnolia and Ravenel become the leading man and woman. And it sort of follows their story through. So 1884 is when it begins. Um, it picks up again in 18, I believe it's 1893, and Ravenel and Magnolia have moved to Chicago, where they have a child, a little girl named Kim, and um, Ravenel has fallen down on hard times, and he ends up leaving Magnolia because he believes that she'd be better off without him. So he leaves her and her small child to go back and live with her parents on the showboat, Um and then the end of it takes place in 1927 when Kim is all grown up and she has become a star of the stage and Ravenel comes back and they are reunited. So that's the really quick down and dirty okay. synopsis. Kind of um, a classic, you know, go away, come back, fall in love, love story type thing. Yeah, kind of. It's really interesting. I, I felt like this... I, I realize listening back to some of our recordings, I say interesting a lot. Lots of things are interesting to me. Um, <laughs> I, I found this was another, you know, we talked about on one of our last episodes, the last five years and how you go through it thinking, you know, you could just divorce him. You could just, you could just divorce him. Like you don't have to go through all this torment. Mm-hmm. Um, in this movie uh, or in the, sorry, I just finished watching the movie a few minutes ago in this musical you spend most of the time thinking Magnolia don't fall for this man. He's eventually going to break your heart. And then she does. And then he leaves her and you think, okay, you should just move on. But instead, even though he's been gone for 25 years, as soon as he comes back, Magnolia just welcomes him in. Like it's no problem. Mm, Yeah. I've missed you. Welcome back. I feel like over 25 years, he'd probably at least get a little, you know, eh, okay, whatever. See you later. Nice to see you. Something you'd or you'd you'd harbor a little resentment that he left you to be a single mother in a time when being a single mother was not okay. You know, it was not something that happened. Um, with you know, it was not looked kindly upon by society, and it was very very difficult to get by as a working woman with a child. Very hard. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, not resent, that it's ever resentment easy. very much could be a, a thing. I mean, I could mm-hmm. see that maybe a little. Yeah. So Dr. Block's chapter was really good. Uh, there was a, it's, it talked, so he, he is also a musicologist and he was teaching a course on, on musicals and realized that there was 
in the in the late 80s early 90s realized that there really wasn't very much written about musicals besides reviews of their plot their scenery very surface reviews of the music so he set out to write this book that talks about all these different musicals so he could use it in his class he's actually a charles ives specialist um which is completely different american composer classical composer um and this book is what came out of his studies for his class and so it was really good to read it was really really interesting and he's trying to make it so that if there was somebody in his class who was not a music major they could still take this class and get something out of it so he tried to write the book in a similar manner he tries to explain some of the musical terms that he uses but nick did you feel like there were some moments where you thought all right cool my brain is bending a little bit so this is not <laughs> yeah so this book is the hardest way to read about the most interesting subject it, I kind of thought you might say that. <laughs> it was a slog. Like, it was like going through waist-deep mud to just, like, the details were super interesting, and he has no concept of flow for reading. It just, you know, a good book and keeps you in and keeps you reading, and it just, all of a sudden, time goes by. This one, every paragraph felt like an hour, and it just kept dragging but there was so much detail, like the the main gist of it, like it was really, I really liked the subject matter. I really liked the info he gave. It just didn't flow at all for me. Yeah, it's interesting because this is actually fairly light musicological reading. And I think that you really wouldn't enjoy um, regular, that's not the right word, You wouldn't. you wouldn't enjoy your classic canon of musicological reading oh i'm sure I'm yeah sure. i did I, we'll talk about your chapter in a minute there were a few things in there that if i'd been his editor i would have asked him to change but dr block is one of the most brilliant people that i have ever met i loved taking his classes and I, it was really fun to read his book because it is a little bit of his style of um of teaching is in his book so back to showboat um showboat is considered one of the best musicals of all time, Grove Music. So so the New Grove Dictionary of Music and Musicians has been around since the 1800s, and it's kind of an authoritative source on music. And it's an encyclopedia that continues to grow and to change and incorporate information about everything new that is music. So they called it perhaps the most successful and influential Broadway musical play ever written. And Dr. Block talks about it as a light opera. So this was one of the first shows where you see uh, composers borrowing techniques from operas like we talked about with Wagner with the light motifs. The mm -hmm. show has a lot of that where they create, let's see, what did he say? He had a great paragraph on that. Dr. Block says, once Kern has established musical equivalents for his characters and their world, he transforms and links these themes melodically and rhythmically to make his and Hammerstein's dramatic points. As, for example, the transformation of Captain Andy's theme into a wedding march at the end of Act One and then into a processional and hymn in Kim's convent school. So this really, rather than just being a collection of songs that the composers thought would be popular, they could just throw them together into a show and make it work. This is um, a work where, although there are a few incidental numbers that are just in there for color, um, most of the songs push the plot forward and um, and 
and the song is into the the musical is integrated through the orchestra and the reoccurrence of certain themes and i think that pushing the plot forward thing is actually pretty important and um i unfortunately didn't have the time nor brain power to read uh, your chapter as well as uh the one i read but he he talked about that with a with a musical needing like kind of one of the concepts of it is pushing the music needs to push the plot forward right i think you would have liked my chapter better than the phantom chapter honestly um it's he talks about a few things in here very specific examples of of thematic um work so for instance he he and other people have argued that the mississippi river is a really important character even though it's you know it's not personified really in any way and it's just sort of there but you hear it musically he argues in the interval of a perfect fourth um, many of the songs incorporate that are sung by people of the river if you will um, incorporate this perfect fourth and those that don't enjoy the life on the river and don't flow that way like Magnolia's mother, Parthi, who sort of harps on everyone throughout the entire show, she actually has a tritone. Nick, have you heard of a tritone before? Yeah, that's a totally a uh, musicologist thing. Why doesn't a musicologist <laughs> explain that to us? Yeah, so the it's an it's an augmented fourth. So, for instance, from a, a D to say a G sharp is one of the ones he talks about in here. And in the Middle Ages, the tritone was considered the interval of the devil. Hmm. Yes. So it was, if you used the tritone in music, which at that point was primarily, you know, composed music was primarily religious music, you didn't use the interval of the devil. That just was not a thing. <laughs> okay, then. Yes. Also, so Parthi, totally not surprised. Like, that's like the way the religious fever went and all that. I could see. Yeah, no, no, that tone. That's devilish tone. Right Don't do that. Well, and it, I always wondered why they picked that particular tone. It's not an easy one to sing. Um, it doesn't come naturally within the way that we've been trained in our Western um, way of making music. It's not an easy, easy pitch to go to uh, or easy. I cannot find my words today. It's not an easy leap to make when you're singing. But that is given to Parthi, who is pretty much always the negative voice in this musical she's telling magnolia don't look at ravenal don't be in love with him she's you know harping on her husband don't give the show away for free um she clearly doesn't really enjoy life on the river she's not doesn't flow with the river like everybody else does so she doesn't get that perfect fourth um interval so yeah um this chapter was was fairly short but it did have some interesting things in it. One of one of the things that I that I found in here was he talks about Hammerstein's lyrics, how the original critics of the show thought that it was brilliant and that Kern's music was amazing. Another thing that that Dr. Block comments on are the two main weaknesses with this show. So the first one is the ending. It's much too sweet you know, after all of this heartache that the characters have gone through to have Magnolia say, of course you can come back, Ravenal. She's like, really? Come on. That's not, that's not real life. Come on. Um, it's not, you know, doesn't even necessarily make for a good uh, fairy tale necessarily. 
Um, then the second thing was that Hammerstein's libretto was, it just fell way short of Kern's musical output. That's the other big complaint. And if you ever get the chance, Nick, to watch the 1951 film, they decided that they were going to solve the, uh, the problem of the libretto and basically just get rid of all of the dialogue that Hammerstein had written. Okay. <laughs> yeah, they basically any any of the speaking parts, they just got rid of them. There were I think there were two scenes that had a little bit of Hammerstein's original wording in it. Otherwise, they completely changed everything because huh. they just decided we got to fix it. Okay, so they just like, yeah, no, you know, he wrote it, but he's not He's not, you know, I mean, he's just the Hammerstein, you know, Hammerstein of Rogers and Hammerstein, but not a big deal. No. <laughs> yeah. So Dr. Block talks about the different staged versions and he talks about the 1936 movie, but he doesn't talk about the 1951 film, which is really interesting to me that he just left that out. I'm not quite sure why. And the next time I see him, I'm going to have to ask him. But... Yeah, so he talks about all of those, and he talks about how there is no definitive first score for this musical, and that is something that musicologists look back to. There's a whole section of musicology called score study. Have you ever heard about score study, Nick? Uh, you know, I can't say I have, but I'm also not at all surprised. <laughs> well, one of my very dear friends, Twyla, Dr. Becker, she does score study on um, the composer Steve Reich and so a lot of what she does is spend time in the archives looking through the original computer files that he used to compose his work and so she looks at the metadata she looks at the changes that he made she looks at different versions of songs different premieres all of these things and this musical is a little tricky a, a good bit of what Dr. Block talks about is how every version made a different choice on what was authentic and what was the right way to do something. So, for instance, in the movie, they compress the timeline. In the 1951 movie, they compress the timeline. And they they make it so that um, Ravenal leaves Magnolia right before she finds out she's pregnant. Rather than when their daughter is 10. Oh, okay. That's a big change. It's a huge change. And it... In some ways, it kind of tightened the story a little bit and makes him less of a monster. Mm -hmm. um, and then he comes back when their child is probably like six rather than when she's in her 20s and performing on stage. That, um, that's actually, like she a, might be in her 30s. Yeah, that's, a, that's a huge, huge change. Huge from, compression. Yeah. And what it does, what I found interesting that it does, and again, I'm using that I word, the interesting word, um, what it does is it changes the, the scenery that is the music. So as you go through, the original music sounds much more like what you would have heard in the mid to late 1800s, the music that they're performing. And then in 1903, when they get to that point, they're starting to introduce some ragtime into the music. And then when they get to the 20s, the music again changes and so i think it takes out a little bit of the ingenuity of the composer it sort of blunts it a little bit 
um, by compressing that timeline. Okay. But yeah, that's just me. Um, have you, I think that you probably have heard some of the songs from this musical and not realized it. Um, can you think of any songs from Showboat that you might know? I honestly, the answer is no. And I'm going to look up the list and see if I recognize any of well, them. Well, um, let's see. I'm going to put on my best bass voice. Here we go. Old Man River. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a good one. Um, Joe. Was it Joe Robson? Oh my gosh, why am I forgetting his name? Um, very, very famous uh, black performer of the early nineteenth, uh, 20th century, excuse me, sang that song and it gave this production a lot of oomph because he was, he was really quite popular. He was in the 1936 film. And so that was his big one. Then the other one is kind of one that's entered into the jazz repertoire which is um can't help loving that man um can't help loving that man of mine okay yeah that that one also sounds familiar of course not like old man river where you everyone has heard that one plenty yeah i i've known that song my entire life just never known where it came from yeah same yeah so this one one of the things that people say about this musical is even if you don't necessarily like the musical there are about six songs that really um, you walk away humming. So I know we had talked about the last five years when you finished watching it, you were like, I don't remember. I don't remember any of the songs. They're just gone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, this one is definitely not that way. It has lots of hummable tunes. Um, The one that's been stuck in my head is Make Believe, um, which is a very sweet song that Ravenel and Magnolia sing when they first meet each other about how they could pretend that they were actually madly in love and then they become madly in love. It is very sweet. And that one's been going through my head. It's kind of, I believe it's a waltz. Um, and it's more in the old style. And yeah, those those are the songs that uh, that really get me. Are you seeing any on the list that you recognize other than those two that I um, sang to you? Honestly, um, that second one, if you hadn't sang it to me, I wouldn't have recognized it. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes total sense. That makes total sense. Yeah. Well, I'm pretty much done talking about this musical, except for one or two of the the items that caught my attention in the music that really added to the drama. So one of the the couples that I had mentioned were Julie and Steve. And Julie is uh, the, the woman of mixed race mm-hmm. who gets ousted from Showboat. And it's very sad. What ends up happening to her is that she and Steve leave. We don't know exactly what goes on in their relationship, but at some point he leaves her and she becomes a drunk who is singing in nightclubs and eventually loses her job singing because she just drinks so much and she's having so much despair. Um, So she's the one who initially sings loving that man of mine can't help loving that man of mine. And that is what first cues the audience off that if you're, if you're really paying attention, that's something that cues the audience that she might not be what she seems. Um, she sings that song, which has some of the trappings of of sort of a um, a song that might be sung in the fields. I guess you could say a, a 
Yeah, something like that. So it, it has, I don't know what's the right way to say it, but it's it's sort of more of a, uh, it's not something you would expect a white woman to sing at that time. And Queenie, the cook of the boat, goes, Miss Julie, how do you know this song? This is a song that we sing. Hmm. You know, how do you know this song? And Julie kind of brushes her off and goes on. And then later you find out that Julie knows it because her mother probably sang it to her. She was a, an African-American woman and she probably sang it to her. So it it's kind of revealing in that way. And... um yeah, it's just, it's a beautiful song and it comes through the entire show. I would say that's the main theme besides Old Man River obviously is very important, but that loving that man of mine, it comes back again and again. And every time it has a slightly different iteration. The first time Julie sings it and she's, she's happy with where she is in her life. She's singing it because her man is with her and she loves him and she sings it in a really heartfelt way. And then it turns into a dance tune. Hmm. Yeah, and this okay. whole yeah, it's it's interesting. This whole um, choir of African American people sing it with her, and she and Magnolia and this choir are all dancing and singing it. Um, and then the next time it comes back, Magnolia is singing it, trying to get a job in a club because Ravenel has left her, and it's just desperately sad. Um, yeah, so it just it has it has this ability. Kern has an ability to morph it throughout the musical to make it fit the dramatic moment and it really works i think that this is a really good example of a, a light opera um as as it was said in dr block's book and it's well worth watching there are many songs that will get stuck in your head <laughs> okay that means it's added to my list of things that uh you have now you have made basically you made this list of things i now need to see <laughs> when i yeah, have that I'll just continue to add to your list yes <laughs> Yeah, the, oh, I was going to say, too, the version that I watched that was live was a 2012 version by the CM Performing Arts Center. I believe they're in New York. So uh, if I remember to send Nick the liner notes, um, we will put that up in the liner notes. And they did a really great job. They did retain the use of the N-word that was in the original production, just forewarning. Um uh, Kern and Hammerstein took that out for the 1946 revival, um, but they decided to maintain it, and uh, that was really great. And then the 1951 musical was was worth watching. The movie um, I haven't been able to find the 1936 movie, but it's probably out there somewhere. Um, the 1951 movie had some big stars in it. Um, it had Ava Gardner as Julie, um, Catherine Grayson played Magnolia, Howard Keel was Ravenel. There were some really big names in it. So check it out. It's quite, it's quite a good, brightly colored, lots of dancing, um, really good watch. So I would highly recommend it. Okay, excellent. All right. So now it's my turn. So, da, 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 da. Da, 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 da. okay, as as Dr. Libby has said, um, I've chose a little bit more contemporary piece with Phantom of the Opera. So a quick little synopsis, if you haven't seen it, it's uh, the play or the movie or whatever you see is a recapping of a story of a haunted opera house and the story of the opera ghost that, you know, you have to 
do these things. They're very superstitious. Got to make sure to pay him, leave his box open, all this. And then secret, mysterious things happen all the time. Um, and when their lead singer goes down, the one of the opera girls goes up and she's apparently trained by the opera ghost. It's, you know, standing applause, very, very popular. And basically she gets taken away after reuniting with a childhood love. They have a little spat, they fight, and uh, it comes to fruition. The childhood love comes back victorious over the the opera ghost or the phantom of the opera. Really short synopsis there. But <laughs> again, down and dirty. Down and dirty, yeah. <laughs> I think most people have heard of it, if not seen it. If not, it's it's very, very worth watching. Even the movie, the the music's great in the movie. There's a couple of, you know scenes that are interesting to watch but it's still really well done so i'm going to try to talk a little bit more about the book than the play because the book is really interesting how it approached the play uh first of all it started out with a critique of andrew lloyd weber in general in fact probably a third of this chapter was a critique on andrew lloyd weber it just started out going, and it's it's an interesting critique because the way he went through the ups and downs and the details of him as a uh, you know writer of music, I can't really figure out what he thinks of him. <laughs> I kind of felt that way too. He must think that he's somewhat good if he included him in his book. Yeah, but he wasn't in his first edition of the book. That's and, true. And he defends him because there's some other, um, he's quoting other musicological whatever books that are talking about, you know, which are the great musical writers. And basically some people just snubbed him. It's like, yeah, yeah, he's hardly worth mentioning. Like not even mentioning his name. And he, he defends him and says, no, no, he's definitely worth mentioning. And then he says, because he's catchy and then you know ups and downs and it's a like i said it's a it's a slog to get through it's really hard to to tell what he wants you to get out of it i thought it was interesting how dr block started the chapter with a quote about puccini um i'm pretty sure it was puccini mm -hmm, sure it was and and yeah and then and then he goes oh actually this could apply to lloyd weber as well um yeah, shall I shall I read the quote for the the ladies and and gentlemen in the audience? Go for it. <laughs> the composer's career was thus marked by popular success and critical doubt. In the years since his death, these motifs have remained central to his musical and musicological reputation. For some time his works remained objects of contempt, and even when he was not openly derided, he was often conspicuous by his absence, failing to merit more than a cursory mention in many supposedly comprehensive studies of the American and British musical. Okay, so the the problem with that starting this whole thing is that it's titled, the subsection says, The Lloyd Webber Problem, and then it goes into that quote. And I'm reading it, and I'm like... He's not dead. He's not dead. <laughs> exactly. I just saw him on Facebook. He, he's like putting out some content during our whole lockdown thing. He's not it's the dead. living dead. Oh God! And then he goes on and says, "This is a quote about Puccini." And then he 
starts to break it down on how it could then also apply to Andrew Lloyd Webber. And he also says, you know, aside from the unimportant fact that and that Lloyd Webber at this time of the second edition is only 60 years old and still quite alive. So yep. he, he points out that that part very quickly, too. So he's got a bit of a sense of humor, I could see. You know, he seems like he's Yes, he human. definitely does. Okay. Um, but he goes and he, he very much critiques Andrew Lloyd Webber and the the stuff that he's produced. Now, I'm going to give you a couple things here that he says were kind of noteworthy. So you may have heard of uh, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, little thing he yes. did. Yes. Uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. Yes. Um, let's see. And, oh, here's the one that was really popular by Jeeves. No? I have never seen no. that, but I wonder if it yeah. is actually based on the Jeeves character. I want to go look it up now. Um, it's interesting because he, we all think of Andrew Lloyd Webber as this big powerhouse of musicals. And then he lists off all these failures that he had. I'm like, dang. Okay, so he had like four really popular ones and not a bunch of really bad ones that just bombed. Um, yep. Or at least bombed in the U.S. Apparently, some of them are really popular in London. So, um, and I guess he's from London. So most of his plays started out on the West End and then traveled uh, over to Broadway from there if they could cut the mustard, which, you know, a few <laughs> of them, a few of them could. Just a couple. Yeah. So he he goes, he can... He does a little comparison to Stodheim and some others, um, a lot of others, actually, so many others that I couldn't even tell you because I don't study this. And mind you, had I gone through the whole book, I'm sure some of this would have made a lot more sense. Well, I felt like, too, though, that his comparisons with Sondheim, I think that they're, they are relevant to a certain extent, but I felt like it sort of clouded the chapter because he spent so much time saying, well, see, he's kind of like Puccini here, and oh, he's kind of like Sondheim here, and I get it, you got to put people in context, but I felt like that really uh, kind absolutely. of clouded. He made so many comparisons in like, there's one chapter where it's just like, well, compared to this person here, and compared to this person here, and, the, and you don't really get what he's trying to show you, what, what he's shaping um, Lloyd Webber to be. It, yep. It, there's no great definition that comes out of who he is. Um, there's a few things about who he's not or some, some really relevant things about what he does. And then he goes on to say, mm, some of those are good. Some of those are bad. Um, he spends a lot of time talking about borrowing. Yes, he does. M musicologists love to talk about borrowing. You know, and I, I never thought of it as that word. I always thought, mm, you know, it's plagiarism or it's, you know, copying, <laughs> but borrowing. And it makes sense because there's, there's tunes, there's rhythms, there's beats, there's, there's things that you get stuck in your head that are traditional that you know, you just, this is a beat that you tap out and I'm going to use that. Well, somebody originally wrote that. Yeah. So, nine times out of 10. I mean, there very rarely is anything. Yeah, exactly. So you're borrowing things, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just when you borrow way too heavily. Um, and he goes on and he gives another billion examples 
about where he's borrowed this from here and this from here. And these four lines come from borrowed from this. And if you listen to this, except in a different key, it's exactly the same as this over here. Um, and it's, a, again, a very big section, very clouded with way too many examples, which I'm sure he's just trying to back himself up, cover his butt. Um, well, and it's it's what you have to do in musicology. You can't just make a, you know, make a statement and not show it. Sure. You and to, we, yeah, you, you know, we do it. that in my field as well. We call it CYA. It's when you fill in so much detail just in case somebody comes prodding that you have to be able to back up what you're saying. Uh, by the way, CYA, cover your ass. <laughs> um, I was wondering what that stood for. Yeah. So we, we fill in every little detail just, you know. The, the person said this, they said they were over here, they were walking this direction, they were th wearing this colored clothes, blah, 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 all that. And you just, you have to, you have to be able to back up because if a sergeant comes in and says, why did you not say this? I'm like, well, I wasn't told that. Here's my full dictation and full the recording or whatever. So I, I get why he's do doing it. It doesn't make for very good reading. I actually thought it sort of made for a good view into the psyche of a musicologist that's that i agree and i i am not at all surprised seeing this come out of mu musicologist um when he starts like throwing in bars of music to compare one versus another it's like okay i don't know the song i'm not good enough to be able immediately to get that tune in my head i could kind of get a general idea of the flow of it but I'm not seeing the, you know, the immediate comparisons there. And he's like, oh, it's obvious. Look at these lines of music. They're not even in the same time signature. Like, what are you doing It'd be to better me? if he had, um, like, listening examples. This is, that's, it, musical examples are traditional in musicological reading. So if we do more of this, be prepared. You're going to see a lot more. Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, here's one example. It's in 6-4. It's got six flats in it. Here's the other one. It's in two floor. Um, and yeah, it's obviously like, yeah, look how clear it is. Like, I really liked his comment where he said, um, oh, where I don't remember what page it was on now, but he said, you know, you play this part of, um, you play this part of uh, this Lloyd Webber piece and they'll go, oh yeah, well clearly that's borrowed from yesterday by the Beatles. Like students will put their hands up and mm -hmm. tell you that this is borrowed from yesterday. And I'm like, what? student is gonna do that right. oh it's from Evita. i'd be surprisingly good for you mm -hmm. um if ask your students if it reminded them of any other popular song they happen to know invariably several students would immediately volunteer the beatles yesterday like really would they maybe if you just pick out one line of it you know yeah well but. what i thought was kind of cool about when he talked about the borrowing so nick you may not know that borrowing is something that is talked about extensively in particularly the classical music or musical theater world, because really, like, for instance, um, John Williams, he, a big criticism of him, and one of the positives is that he borrows extensively from classical composers, extensively. So Dr. Block talks about in here that how you borrow without committing plagiarism is you put this music into your musical, your uh, film score, your symphony, and you pay it back with interest. Mm -hmm. You you add something to it. You give it a dramatic import it didn't have before. You can't just, you can't just plop it in and go, wow, look, aren't I cool? Yeah, I thought that made a lot of sense, actually. 
because when you think of like plagiarism, you think of like under pressure and um, ice ice baby. Yeah. Right. Straight up yeah. plagiarism. There's nothing add to it, added to it. And it kind of, you know, takes away from the whole original, you know, feel of, um, of queen. So plagiarism there, but adding to it, bringing something, you know, it didn't have before that. I could see that as a great way of kind of separating the borrowing versus plagiarism. Yeah, I think it really makes a lot of sense. And one of the examples that he talks about, he talks about the term contrafacta and how um, that works. And so one of, one of the ways the contrafacta works is, for instance, during the American Revolution, when they would take um, British songs and, you know, add little flourishes, slight musical differences, the same song and turn it into some type of American anthem, um, like God Save the King, which was turned into America. Um, it just, it changes the meaning of the song and it had a particular purpose. It was really to, you know, rib at, undermine the British. And um, yeah, so he, you know, he talks about that in some of the examples in Lloyd Webber's work where this contrafacta actually um, happened. So it's, he says it's a fancy name used to describe either the appropriation of harmony from one song to another or the recycling of melodies with new texts. And this was particularly popular in uh, before the 20th century that people would do this all of the time. They would take, they would take a um, tune that they heard and write new lyrics to it. And that's how a lot of folk music um, was transmitted around and changed. And um, yeah, anyway, it was interesting to hear him talk about that, but it, this reading this really made me think I never questioned when I was in school that when you are deconstructing an opera or a musical or perhaps a symphony and you're like you're looking at um, things like for instance Charles Ives he borrows from American hymns all the time in his symphonies just over and over and over again and that's a lot of what musicology is is sort of connecting the threads and figuring out what inspired the composer to write this way and what inspired this moment and ooh, isn't it interesting that he takes this 17th century hymn and actually makes it into a atonal jazz piece hmm. you know what does that say about it and that's kind of it's one of the basis basi base, <laughs> sort of the basis <laughs> i don't know of of the the um, discipline is finding those connections and so for musicologists lloyd weber is frustrating because he just brings back this beautiful music that he brought to you earlier in the show that you really liked, you know, a theme that got caught in your ear and plays it again and again, but doesn't necessarily give it dramatic import or use it to tell you anything. He just puts it in there. It, it just, it flows and it underscores the entire music throughout the whole musical without much change. Mm -hmm. That seemed mm -hmm. to be the the thing that frustrated uh, Dr. Block here was like, it's just not changing. It's, it's the theme, the, the Phantom's theme, it plays and it plays and there's the Phantom's themes and it plays. So, and he missed a lot of the dramatic moments where he could have taken it to, to mean, Oh, actually um, Christine, you know, knew she knew that the Phantom had caused this. So they played this theme, you know, like it, it's, it's sort of a way where in a book you actually can can narrate the person's thoughts mm -hmm. in a musical oftentimes musical themes will tell you their thoughts when they can't actually speak them to you 
Mm -hmm. or you know give you more background you were talking about showboat how that song it changed through time it was the same song but it changed its style and it it told a story in itself how it changed yeah he just doesn't nope and yet people love him anyway did you see some of the numbers that dr block was talking about in here for performances for the for uh lloyd weber's plays yeah it was it was pretty huge and now i have no idea where it is i know i'm I'm trying to find it um so he was talking about i remember the number eight thousand um i'm trying to remember where he where he talked about that but he was talking about how even though it you know it, it doesn't matter necessarily what critics think of lloyd weber because his shows are so popular i mean obviously not all of them as nick said but uh jesus christ superstar evita all of those those shows are so popular and no other shows. I mean, you think of the Lion King, that's a popular show. It's been around since the early nineties and it just continually plays on Broadway in different places. And it doesn't even come close to how popular Lloyd Webber's shows are and how many, how many performances they've had. Right. And this book was written before School of Rock, too, which is kind of a really popular one right now and just kind of throws me off that Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote the score for a musical based off a Jack Black movie. <laughs> that is really funny. It just, I didn't realize that. Just it. I don't know. It, I haven't seen the musical, but I hear it's amazing. It's incredibly popular and I have. I, it just still baffling. I got to see it someday. Yeah, I think I think we have a lot of shows that we need to go see. I am That's going to I get actually still so haven't broke. seen that movie. Oh, it's it's a good movie. I like it. It's worth watching. Yeah, yeah. It's a good well, solid story. It's not like anything mind blowing. It's you know, it's entertaining. Exactly, and it's not well, like a like weak Jack story. Black. It's you know, it's a good uplifting. You know, do your best, become good people story. Right. No, that makes total sense. Um, did you catch, and maybe this didn't stick out to you because um, you didn't read the chapter that I read, but both of our musicals borrow from Dvorak. Did you, did Antonin Dvorak, did you catch that part that he talked about in there I that Dr. S- Block talked about? I saw something about it. I don't know who Dvorak is. So <laughs> He was a composer. I believe he was originally Czech. I can't remember if he visited the U.S. or moved to the U.S. I think he visited and he wrote a symphony called the New World Symphony. And both of our musical borrow musical themes or motives uh, from that symphony. So the main one that your musical borrows is the Phantom's main theme, where whenever you hear it, you know the Phantom's coming. The da 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 mm-hmm. that bit. That is borrowed from the New World Symphony. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was a pretty cool thing and i didn't i read my chapter twice and then i read your chapter and i went back and read mine again i was like oh i totally missed that the first time <laughs> they both had borrowing so you said Dvorak. he was czech not not like czech australian though right he wouldn't be a czech mate <laughs> oh my gosh dad joke but i'm bumping no he was czechoslovakian got it got it okay so uh something else that was um, actually, really interesting to me. A little subsection. It's uh, titled "New uh, Musical Organicism," 
and try saying that mm-hmm. twice fast. Um, oh, thanks. And he's talking about the integrated musical, which is, um, it seems like kind of a standard for us today. Basically, uh, he defines it here as, as soon as I could find it here. Uh that uh, that the songs advance the plot, flow directly from the dialogue, and express the thoughts of the characters who sing them. So that's kind of how I define a musical in general, is that it's continuing. The, the, the sentences that they're talking, they're speaking, and then it goes into the music, and it continues that plot on. But I guess it wasn't always that way. And you think of old-timey musicals where it's, singing then they're talking and then it's singing and maybe the song will go with it but it doesn't necessarily keep the doesn't advance the plot on in its own way so that's a a really interesting thing and um he he says if rogers and hammerstein did not invent it um then he definitely you know outlines it here with this and yeah phantom is he talks about too how important the orchestra is in that process and how um the orchestra he says through accompaniment and underscoring the orchestra parallels complements or advances the action um and i think to those earlier musicals so a lot of a lot of what i study is from the late 19th century and essentially they would um they would do what's called interpolation so they would take a popular song and put it into a musical. So they'd have a really loose story. It could be about a dance hall girl who's trying to find love. And you could have a story in there that was everything from, I love these boots I wear when it rains to, um, you know, Oh, my, my boyfriend went off to war to, I mean, just, there could be anything in there. So pretty um, much every Elvis movie that came out. <laughs> yeah. Or kind of, um, I think when I think of uh, singing in the rain, I think of that as sort of a bridge between the two because you can tell they definitely had some musical moments that they wanted to include. And the way that they were able to is because they were actors. And so they could kind of make this pastiche of, of unrelated songs, you know, like beautiful girl in that show that has no relation to the plot. There's this whole long section that does not advance the drama at all. But now we modern listeners sort of require in a lot of ways that our musicals are like movies or stories and that everything is connected and flows together. Otherwise we just can't pay attention to it somehow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we criticize it because it's not, it's not the story. It's like, well, what's the point? Why do you even have this song? Why did you write a musical about T.S. Eliot's poems about various types of cats and you just sit there the whole time waiting for the story to begin. I mean, sorry, what? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I don't know where that came from. Sorry. Sorry. No, no personal experience there at all. No, no. No. Okay. Well, hey, another thing occurred to me while I was reading this chapter, he talks about mega musicals and how Andrew Lloyd Webber sort of started, he kind of is really good at doing the mega musical and phantom is definitely a mega musical. And a lot of times those are um, derided by the musicology world because they're just thought to be too popular. There's not enough merit to them. They're, they're just too popular. Mm -hmm. And 
um, I was thinking back to our discussion about the greatest showman and how my critique of that was that it just sort of seems like, oh, well, we've got this loose, you know, story about P.T. Barnum, but we have these fantastic songs. Like, let's make this giant, amazing, blow you out of your seats show. And that's kind of how I feel about a lot of Andrew Lloyd Webber shows and what I kind of got from Dr. Block is that it's sort of, it's just, its goal is to be huge. It's going to blow you out of your seat, but it doesn't have quite the traditional musical characteristics, like characteristics of a musical that we are, that traditionally musicologists look for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, I think if anything, it's an evolution, right? Yeah. It's not. We're not going to sit there and listen to a song, then, you know, then see how the plot goes and then listen to the the character talk about that plot point. And then, you know, they're, it's this thing here is huge. And then this little thing and this huge. it's things change. I know, I know yeah. musicologists love looking in the past. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, tell me again your major there, Libby. Uh, <laughs> um, actually, one of the things that we talked about in school, which was really funny, is new music um, is something that you can study. And oftentimes it's music from the 50s and 60s. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, sorry, Twyla, I don't mean to poke fun. Um, yeah, so it was always like, it's not really new music anymore. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's hard to study modern music because it changes so quickly and you need a little bit of perspective to really see how it's sitting. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. something that's really like everyone could be, you know, like, Oh, that mumble rap garbage. And then in 20 years you look at like, Oh, if you look at the nuances and the way he mumbles here and the. <laughs> Absolutely. I, there's a whole different, uh, there's a whole different view on it. It suddenly fits in with what was going on in society at the time or it, it demonstrates some great movement or something. Mm -hmm, exactly. Well, I was surprised in this chapter that Dr. Block didn't talk about Rigoletto in comparison to Phantom of the Opera. Have you, um, have you heard of the story of Rigoletto? Alas, you're uh, coming again to my, <laughs> the edge of your knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, the, there's an opera, which is by Giuseppe Verdi, and it's essentially about a duke, I believe it is, who goes around sleeping with as many people as he possibly can. He, If you have a wife, he's going to seduce her. Or a daughter. Daughters are just as good. Um, so his court jester, Rigoletto, hides his daughter away because he does not want the duke to seduce her. And she ends up being found out and the Duke seduces her as he does. And she ends up giving up his her life to save the Duke. And anyway, that story kind of got morphed again. There was in 1993, there was a movie called Rigoletto, which was about a man who had a very scarred face and a hunchback. And he lived in this village during the depression and there was a girl who could who had an absolutely beautiful voice but needed some training and she ends up going to his house and putting up with his rages and telling him you know that his soul was black and all of this stuff and at the end of the movie he ends up redeeming himself he, he is killed but through being killed he is reborn back to his original state as this beautiful handsome prince and reunited with his his love, his lifetime love. 
But the story is so similar to the Phantom of the Opera, you know, where there's there's this this pull for this beautiful young girl who has this amazing voice to study with this phantom like figure who is hideous and his his you know, he hides in the shadows because his face is all mangled and you know, but she has the pull of the real world and Anyway, I just I was surprised he didn't he didn't reference that, but perhaps he was not a fan of nineteen early nineteen nineties movies. <laughs> yeah, it entirely could be just it was way too modern for him. Yeah. It could be, but he didn't talk about that, and that just surprised me a little bit. Um, did you did you read in there the part where he talked about that this story, the story of the Phantom, uh, derived partially from Beauty and the Beast. Yes, from like an early version of the like French fairy tale. And see, Nick, all of your favorites are coming together. Yes, <laughs> yes, but you know, early versions of fairy tales and what we currently know them as are two very, very different things. Especially once Disney has processed them. Right. Exactly. <laughs> very, very, very different. Yeah. So it's a you know definitely interesting there and and then the the play itself is an original. Uh, Lloyd Webber based it off an earlier version that was based off of an even earlier version and it's changed and it's changed and you know it went from him being like hunchback, horribly disfigured, you know, awful to see to being a very handsome man with some scars under a mask. Yes, he could easily be um christine's lover right it's just it's just that his face is a little scarred up yeah so he's he's a total contender right exactly so rich count man who lives in a dank basement I... you know he, I, I, he, he's got some money right every month he gets and he's his... got some good pipes right yeah knows how to play the organ oh that is key that oh. is key yeah well i really enjoyed reading this chapter um just for the fact that it was cool that he talked about the silent film and how the the changes that the story went through when music was added and how the movie then changed that. I kind of think that's what prompted him to write this chapter is that the movie came out in 2004 and they made a number of changes. Um, did you see too that he talks very excitedly about there being a sequel? Yes. Yeah, I did. Uh, he definitely seemed like real hopeful. I haven't heard anything about a sequel to this, but he kind of gave a general idea. It's a phantom love never dies. <laughs> yeah. And it's in, it takes place in New York and I guess it was composed. And I think that I read that it was shown to an audience in Australia. It ran in Australia for a while, but something happened. It may have made it to the West end, but it never made it to Broadway and it closed very early. So okay. it was a total flop. See, and it does. I guess Andrew Lloyd Webber, he's able to do those. And just he's those are all totally underscored by all the amazing other things that he does. Yeah, I think that he had there was a certain decade, maybe a decade and a half where the music that he was putting out was exactly what people wanted to hear. It brought them back to the theater. And I think now that isn't the style anymore. Um, and he, so I think that he's kind of lost a little bit of touch with, you know, with what modern people want to hear. But I do think he made large contributions to the rock opera genre. I mean, this is definitely a rock opera. And, um, yeah. Yeah. I, think he I mean, the heavy synthesizers and, uh, and electric guitars thrown in um, amongst with the, uh, with the organ and, you know. 
I mean, and just the operatic, singing just the whole operatic. And... Yeah. Which it's here and there. I think the operatic singing is more of, uh, you know, putting it in its place in an opera house, but it, it mixes it in. It, it sounds cool. I'll tell you what. Mm-hmm. It does. It totally does. I think there are a lot more things we could talk about about this, but I think we, we basically covered it. I would, I, I don't know. I think anyway, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I think, I think we summed it up really well. Um, for anybody interested, um, the book was actually very interesting. It, like I said, I had a hard time getting through it. I am not a music major. I, <laughs> uh, I understood most of the points and I thought it was very interesting. Uh, but like, Libby said it it was definitely written by a doctor and probably this last chapter wasn't the best one to start with. Yeah, which I actually was surprised. I would have thought that the last chapter would have been a great place to start, um, particularly since you were very familiar with the work, but I can see why it wasn't. There was just something about the writing style in that last chapter that didn't flow as smoothly as the others. Um, perhaps he hadn't sat with it as long. These other chapters he taught on them multiple times. Um I'm not sure, but Dr. Block is definitely, he majorly influenced my walk through being a musicologist for the 14 year period that I was. And, um, he, I know he influenced a lot of people. He just recently retired actually, but he is a very charming person. He's one of those people who is so smart and has lost a little bit of his ability to, um, to interact with the real world. He used to bump into desks and apologize to them (laughs) and he would get so excited. He just, he wanted you to, to grasp every musical theme that was, Oh, this is interesting. And so he'd turn on these tapes that he made with collections of these themes and he would gesticulate, you know, every time one was coming up, he would give you this big, you know, hand up in the air and he was so excited. He was really fun to take classes from. And I think for myself personally, as I kind of, ease back into musicology after being away from it for a few years, I might just continue reading one chapter at a time and finding all the versions of these musicals that I can, um, because most of them I have not watched. And I really, really enjoyed reading what he had to say and sort of hearing his voice again in my head. Yeah. And that's, that's really cool. Having that, having that personal experience there. So I'm glad you got to, uh, to share a little bit of this with me. I got to feel a bit of his voice, see a little bit of a of his humor there just hints of it through the this like the slog but and know what you're missing out on you don't get to read this all the time i know i know uh, to be fair i don't get to read anything hardly ever <laughs> but i i did enjoy it and i uh thank you for for introducing me to this getting a little touch of what you went through for so many years of musicology study yeah my brain would just hurt it would just hurt. This was, we would read oftentimes 500 to seven or 800 pages a week. Um, by the time I was in my, my PhD. So having a, I, I don't know, I sat down and opened this up thinking, okay, I better set aside a lot of time. And then my, I think my chapter was 22 pages. And I'm like, oh, oh, where'd that go? <laughs> so I said, I read it three times and I read your chapter because I was like, oh, well that was, that was easy. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, we had very different approaches to this. I brought it to work with me, read it between nine one one calls, and then uh, I took absolutely no notes on it because my mind was still trying to process what the heck all these comparisons were. 
Yeah, probably would have benefited from a second read. But. Yeah, so, Nick, what have you been listening to this week? If you didn't listen to Showboat and you didn't listen to Phantom of the Opera, what have you been listening to? Ooh, that's a good question. Let me actually look at that because I have. It's been a, a lot of popular music um, this week. And yeah, it's it's been mostly popular acoustic versions. Um, I'll some reason been ringing in my ear lots of acoustic stuff i've been plucking away um i think i mentioned last episode how i just had a tune stuck in my head and couldn't figure it out and finally figured out it was stairway to heaven so i've been plucking away that on my ukulele just trying to make it smooth it's not terribly hard to play i think anybody on a guitar could tell you that but it's just not yet smooth in my hand so it's just a, a little fun thing that i've been working on well that's cool um, and we did, uh, I sent Nick over a track of vocal recordings to uh, Dolly Parton's Jolene. So that'll be fun to pair up and try a couple of other things. And for those of you that don't know Nick, whenever you say anything like, well, I might be interested in trying a new instrument, uh, he'll show up at your door with one pretty um, instantaneously. So I got to play around on a tenor banjo a little bit last week discovered that having tiny hands is not good for that so nick was like no problem i'll bring you a mandolin <laughs> hey i think you'll love the mandolin it's a great it's such a beautiful sounding instrument it's full it's used in lots of irish music it's um it's just got this unique sound and it projects a wall of sound every time regardless of if you want it to or not yeah i think that i'm going to enjoy playing it quite a bit so um, I'm, I fully expect some of the uh, mandolin parts from uh, Nickel Creek uh, oh by gosh. the time we next uh, record this. So practice up. My fingers will be bleeding. <laughs> bleeding, I tell you. <laughs> yeah. And if you guys haven't seen Nickel Creek, just look up some of the old videos of them performing live. And it's the most dweebish band. It is so funny because it's like young kids, violin, guitar and mandolin and they rock out so hard they they're so proud and they are really good so uh definitely yeah, check out the fox in out. particular that's a good one yes absolutely yeah well i've been listening to a lot of dreamers circus have you heard of them i have not yeah they are a um oh my gosh what do you call it when you're from like sweden and denmark and they're scandinavian, scandinavian. Uh -huh. there you go they're scandinavian um so they are three musicians, I believe all classically trained um, men who play very interesting instruments. So some of them play uh, piano and um, accordion, violin. Um, they're really great. And they play, basically they, they sort of take either uh, some classical music, they have some, some Bach that they play, and then they also take... Um, they take so they take Bach and they sort of trad it. So they make it into more of a traditional music sound. So they make it sound Irish or Scottish or um, I'm sure there's some Scandinavian music that sounds similar to that kind of a folk sound. But then they also take some traditional music and sort of make it more into um, what would you call it? They sort of make it more into something that perhaps Steve Reich would have written where it's a it's a minimalist sound. So they have this one theme and they very, very gently tease it out over many minutes and it very, very slowly builds. It's almost something you could meditate to. Hmm. So yeah, while well, I've been putting my 
invoices in this week, um, I have been playing Dreamer Circus and listening to their songs. And I think they are just about to have a new album come out. So look for that. All right, um, that'll if you be. You are a fan of Dreamer Circus. That'll be something I'll have to look into. I tend to have actually a lot of time to listen for to music because I like to run for long periods of time. So always interesting to find something new. Well, May 29th is when their new album comes out. It's called Blue White Gold. Oh, of course, Blue White Gold, Dreamer yes. Circus. Yes. Okay. And yeah, they have a couple good ones. They released one in 2018 as well, and and then. Um, they go a little further back, 2015, 2013, about every every two to three years they release an album. So, um, yeah, check them out. Excellent. Okay. Well, thank you all for listening to us babble on about Dr. Block's book, which is titled... Enchanted Evenings, the Broadway musical from Showboat to Sondheim and Lloyd Webber. And this, this was definitely kind of fun because uh, I had two of the books and I gave one to Nick and I said, okay, read the last chapter. It's on Phantom. And he calls me and he goes, hey, so um, the last chapter is not on Phantom. And it turns out I have the first version and the second version. And I'd given Nick the first version. (laughs) So you're welcome. Thank you, Libby. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, stay tuned. We'll be uh, coming back again, I hope. Yep. Talk to you next time.